Welcome to another episode of the Due North Outdoors podcast. I am Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always produces this podcast. Thank you, Brandon. Our guest today is no stranger to the world of fishing, ice fishing, or this podcast. And because we are in the middle of the strangest ice fishing season in our lifetime, I thought Tony Roach would be a perfect guest to have on the show. Tony, welcome back to the podcast. And I think you have an off day today, a rare off day during the winter. Is this true? This is an off day. It's an office day, I guess. (laughs) What does an office day look like to you then? What do you do during an off day? So kind of retooling, regearing, you know, uh, in addition to to filming, you know, I do a lot, obviously a lot of guiding and uh, it's just like fixing equipment, uh, replenishing tackle boxes, sending out invoices, the normal thing that you would you would think a fishing guide would be doing on his day off. <laughs> uh, I am going to my son's basketball game at some point. Uh, but yeah, just kind of, you know, retooling. Uh, everything gets frozen up in the winter, although this winter has been fairly easy on equipment because it's not sub-zero every day like it normally is. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to get into all the the craziness of this ice fishing season. And as I sit here today, it is January 29th, Monday, January 29th. The temperature is a sunny 41 degrees here in the metro area of Minnesota. I was just out on the ice, oh gosh, a day ago. We're still holding up okay here for the ice that we did grow in the early part of January, um, but it is, it's bizarre. So I took a, a gentleman who flew in from France out fishing for his first time ever on the ice uh, a couple days ago. And, you know, we had just lost the little bit of snow that we had on top of the ice. So there was um, glare ice, very slippery. Uh, But it is so uh, bizarre to just see like you're walking on water because that snow melted. So, you know, you've got a quarter inch of water on top of crystal clear ice. So for him, I mean, there were times where he stopped walking because if you don't see bubbles or a crack, you swear you're going to walk right into open water. I mean, it is so, so bizarre. But um, looking at the forecast here, and I know you're a meteorologist all winter long, Tony, but one thing that I, as I look here in the next 10 days, it's what are the low temperatures doing? Because this time of the year, you know, those highs are typically not that warm for very long during the day, but if it can drop below freezing, you can make ice even if the daytime highs are above freezing. Um, and it's going to be very interesting here to see what we end up with moving forward. We're still on, I would say, 10 to 12 inches of ice here. That's what I saw when I was out on Lake Minnetonka here, like I said, in the metro. Uh, Tony, where have you been fishing and what are your ice conditions like further north? Yeah, so we still have a snowpack, uh, which, you know, is is dwindling, but we still have it. And then these days where it's been really foggy and overcast kind of really has been our saving grace from that sun deteriorating the ice like you're speaking of where it's, you know, complete water on the surface, um, that sort of thing. You know, 41 degrees in January is different than 41 degrees in March. Uh, I think you touched on, we may only have an hour or two during the day where it gets above freezing. And then the rest of the time it's, it's below freezing. And I have been clinging to those nighttime lows, you know, uh, Sunday, for example, you know, really warm on Saturday, but Sunday, you know, it was in the upper teens, even 20 at night. We still have good ice up here, good fishable ice everywhere. There's people 
even driving, um, pulling their wheelhouses out. I've been fishing all over the place, anywhere from Winnebagosh down to Mille Lacs and everywhere in between. Some of the smaller lakes seem to have better ice than, you know, let's say a lake like Mille Lacs. Mille Lacs just kept on staying open with all the wind and the ice out there is really varying. I mean, it that cold snap really helped fix a lot of the problem areas, but you're still seeing ice varying from, let's say, 8, 9, 10 inches in one area to over a foot in another. So those variances always worry me, especially when you get an uh, uh, kind of a long warm-up like we're experiencing here where, you know, the next 10 days it's going to be above freezing during the day. So, you know, I, I would just use caution. Every lake that I've gone to, I'm still checking ice. You know, it, it's weird. Uh, when you get into January like this, you know, of course, ice is never safe, but you feel a lot more comfortable, especially when you've been on that body of water for a, for a long period of time or like a Mille Lacs or Winnie where they're plowing roads and there's lots of people utilizing that road. Um, I still have not driven my truck on the lake. Uh, Isn't that wild? Taking, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, we're, we're taking rangers out, four-wheelers, snowmobiles. Um I haven't been down to Blacks for a few days, so tomorrow morning, my first day back, I'm actually taking my snowmobile out there. I'm going to go check some spots. There had been some cracks that had opened up. Uh, I want to check all that stuff before we drag our customers out there because, you know, I want to make sure every inch is safe. And, yeah, as we're getting into February here, I'm still worried about ice conditions. We're still not driving. Uh, it's a crazy year, Trav. Yeah, it is. Anybody listening right now that – is an ice fisherman or ice angler they obviously know we're, that this is crazy here um but i think people are just really trying to get dialed in on like their lake where they're gonna go maybe it's red maybe it's lake of the woods maybe it's Malax, maybe it's winnie or you know a variety of the ten thousand other lakes in minnesota um and every lake has been drastically different so that's why it's just kind of like well what about mine what about my lake i mean here in the metro i i've seen half ton trucks with uh, tandem axle fish houses drive out and you're just crazy because they checked a, one spot and it had 12 inches of ice good to go let's go you know floodgates open and the reality is that in that little snow drift that it was only three inches of snow um, there was eight inches of ice underneath it you know and that's coming from the resort or the uh the marina owner on that particular lake lake waconia where i live you know, and they're just like, yeah, we're not opening our access up to vehicle traffic because we're still seeing eight inches of ice in spots. You know, even though, yes, we have also seen 12, the vary is so much, which is typical. But, you know, as you in a normal year, by this time, those spots, you know, they all kind of even out and you're looking at 16 to 24 or even 30 inches of ice and people are just, you know, it's a free for all. I have not felt like I'm just really comfortable um, knowing the ice has been solid everywhere that I've fished this winter. And I'm sure you're, you're putting other people's lives in your hands. It's got to be just like maddening this whole season. Yeah. You know, uh, th that, that cold snap we had helped, but you know, it takes a few days, right? Uh, mm -hmm. so, um, you know, the, that first, I would say two, three days of that cold snap, I mean, other than like when we were up on Winnebagosh, I didn't feel comfortable taking my Ranger out yet. So we were still on four wheelers and snowmobiles and, you know, so that, yeah, the comfort level goes down, but also 
uh, for me, I check every inch of ice for people. Um, we don't assume anything. Uh, this year I had some, some, the, of the most varying ice I've ever seen in my life has been this year. And, uh, um, I don't like, to, I, I'm not willing to put my own life at risk, let alone, uh, customers for, for fishing. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. we've been playing it safe. I've felt very comfortable on the ice, uh, this year. Um, you know, from the time that we started even filming dialed and angling all the way through my guide season here, it's just been a challenge because, uh, let's say like a company trip, for example, you know, a lot of those people want to come out, they want to fish in our Yeti fish houses or hard houses. And, uh, you know, that, they want that comfort level, right? They don't want to mm-hmm. go out and sit portables. It might be the entire office. And they use it for networking among themselves, team building, however they they set up that trip. They want some sort of comfort level. And we haven't been able to provide that yet this year. We're still using, you know, the pop-ups and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, Trav, we just need like one more cold snap. And uh, I feel like we'd be out of the woods a little bit. And I would feel a lot more comfortable. And then maybe I would be driving on the ice. But up until now, like I said, I I haven't driven on the ice. I usually err on the side of caution. I've been ice guiding for 20 years. And uh, it never gets super comfortable for me. Uh, you know, obviously, when you get into January and February, usually you're not talking about this sort of thing. But I'm always checking, even if it's January or February and I get to a new body of water where I haven't been or I haven't seen any other tracks, I'm still checking the ice because I need to know. I need to know it's safe. Uh, And we're just in one of those years where, you know, you you can't just let your guard down. And any anybody listening to the podcast after this this warm up especially when you don't have a snowpack i would definitely be checking the ice and i would definitely uh you know hold off on driving even if you have a foot ice house you know when you're talking about having water on the ice and cracks not healing even at night when it gets cold it heals up but also it's creating cracks right because it's mm-hmm. the water goes somewhere yeah and that water's going to go somewhere and so you know i i always err on the side of caution uh if if Let's say that, that, you know, my comfort level to bring my wheelhouse out is about 15, 16 inches. Some people would be like, oh, man, you can drive on a foot. Well, that's fine. You can they can drive on a foot. I need that extra three, four inches to make sure everyone's safe. Right. I mean, so that's that's a big deal because I I can relate to that. And back in high school and college, I was an ice fishing guide down here in the metro as well as during the summer. And. I really struggled during the winter when I had my um, hard-sided houses out on the lake and I had people come into town because Lake Minnetonka is just, I mean, it's one of those lakes where there's dangers in every bay. And if I'm not there with somebody, I'm nervous. You know, they come out, they're in my house and I tell them, I'm like, okay, you know, if they drove out to the house and they're going to spend the night, <clears throat> one, you want to make sure that they're doing everything right with the heaters and propane tanks and all that stuff because they're not from around here. They're not familiar with it. But two, don't leave the house. If you need to go to shore, I want you to call me because I want to make sure that I come and, and direct you back because 
I mean, if they drove into one of those channels on Lake Minnetonka, you know, they would go through with their vehicle or ATV or whatever it might be. So I was never comfortable when I had people spending the night in my houses. I couldn't sleep at night. I mean, it was awful. It was just terrible. So I get where you're coming from in that you're going to wait for extra safety before taking somebody else out there because it's not just yourself that you're talking about. When most people go fishing, it's themselves. You're you're just trying to make sure that others are safe too. And I mean, that's a lot of responsibility on your shoulders. Um, and it's funny to me, you talk about 12 inches is kind of like the magic number. And I'll take Lake Waconia, for instance, over the last 10 years with the explosion of wheelhouses, um, there's been a decent panfish bite, crappies and sunnies. And the lake will go from having portables and 11 and a half inches of ice and people walking out, four-wheelers, ATVs, whatever, 11 and a half inches and all of a sudden it goes to 12 and a thousand one ton diesel trucks with 25 foot houses come, you know, rolling by. And it's like, did that half inch all of a sudden make it okay to put, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds on it. But the power and strength of that ice is just, it's remarkable to me that we don't see more accidents out there on the ice, frankly. I mean, um, all right, let's let's move on from the ice talk because um, there's fish to be caught. How has the fishing been on some of the lakes that you've been guiding on, Winnie and Malax? Oh, it's been really good. Uh, I think with with no snow cover, you know, vegetation is still alive. Uh, um, oxygen levels are really good. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's the typical you know, end of January, early February type of bite where if you're walleye fishing, for example, you're not tied to these bite windows, they're biting all day. And yes, this full, this last full moon, I've noticed that the the fishing slowed down a little bit when it comes to walleyes and the nature of the beast is, you know, you get into that late January, early February full moon, they're feeding at night. And so Mm -hmm. we guide during the day, definitely slowed down this last week, but once this moon phase gets behind us, um, I'm anticipating a, a really good daytime walleye bite still. And a lot of lakes that I'm going to, there's not much traffic out there. Uh, I, I, you're not seeing tons of people. If, if, if the resorts aren't allowing we, vehicle traffic and wheelhouses, there's virtually no one out there. I can drive around Leech, Winnie, Cass, Malax, and during the week it's like a ghost town and so these fish haven't seen lures they haven't heard noise um i would say the fishing's really good and i fished everything from you know because of filming with dialed and angling everything from trout to bluegills to walleyes to crappies uh you know pike you name it and everything seems to be biting pretty well uh i was just on a small lake over the weekend and it's amazing how green those weeds are and it's i don't want to say it's it's exactly like early ice but it's pretty Mm -hmm. darn close uh i i don't ever remember a year like this in february where you know i'm catching perch in three four five six feet of water same with bluegills i was just catching bluegills in less than six feet of water you, you, normally this time of year those fish start to move out of those areas and out to the basins and that sort of thing and they're not this year they're they're up there shallow because they're they're happy it's warm uh they've got good oxygen and plenty of covers so um, and food and lots of food so yeah, yeah i mean that, it's cool 
It is. I mean, it's it's like what you would anticipate finding in December, the first couple of weeks of that ice fishing season. Um, it's it's typical for fish behavior to change throughout the winter based on what we're doing on top, but also oxygen. That's such a big part of the game during the winter season. And because of the way that the ice came so late, not having any ice on top that first week of January before it all locked up, I mean, that really means that we're the fish are not forced to move and do different things. And obviously they're more aggressive when there's, when there's that higher oxygen levels in the water. Hey there, Aquarius Home Services is geared up to make your new year absolutely fantastic. Are you ready to transform your water experience in 2024? Just imagine turning on your faucet and excitedly declaring, I love my water. Enjoy worry-free water right now. And guess what? You won't have to pay a penny until 2025. Say goodbye to spotty dishes, revel in softer hair and skin, and wave farewell to annoying white-scale buildups and rust stains. With Kinetico, the world's most efficient water treatment system, you'll get purified drinking water directly from your own faucet, all without the need for electricity. And trust me, you'll be amazed at how little salt you'll need. Aquarius, your local authorized Kinetico dealer, is committed to treating you, your home, and your time with the utmost respect. Don't miss out on worry-free water. Act fast. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Financing offers are subject to credit approval. Are you tired of your job and wish that you could start a new career? Well, now you can. Ace Solid Waste is an award-winning waste management company, and they are looking for people just like you. Ace Solid Waste has over 60 years of experience servicing customers in the Minneapolis metro area, and their company is growing. Ace provides themselves on having safe, reliable, friendly, and professional employees that set their team apart. Their talented staff will run you through Ace University and prepare you for the position that best fits your skill sets. From truck driver operator to mechanic, operations to customer service, there is a perfect role at Ace waiting just for you. Plus, you'll receive competitive salary, benefits, and paid vacation. Life is short. Don't stay at a job that's not right for you. Experience the Ace difference today. Check them out at acesolidwaste.com. We don't have to worry about winter kill this year. Last year, that was a big that was a big talking point. We talked about it on this podcast. We had biologists in here. No worries about that this year, unless something unbelievable happens, which doesn't look like is going to happen. So um, I talked to one of your guides, Nick Sakella, last week, and and he was saying just how the ice on Lax has just been so um, moving constantly and ridges and, and dangerous areas. Are you seeing those firm up yet? Or are they still that way? Uh, I would say they're still, I would use caution going out of Mille Lacs just because of the cracks and how much they're moving. You know, any, anytime I've seen it for years on Mille Lacs where you have some of those weaker ice areas, that's where it's going to snap. And that big cold snap, I was surprised how few cracks there were until towards the end of that cold snap when the sun finally started coming out and it started hitting some of that black ice out there. Mm -hmm. uh, it was amazing. We watched it pop. I was standing in a, in a hard house with some customers. We had customers in portables. We had a big group trip out there and I was standing in there just checking on them. Uh, they had just caught a walleye. We were, you know, just having a conversation all of a sudden. Woo! I mean, it cut loose 
and it almost knocked me off my feet. And I knew what crack had just opened up. There was a crack west of us about, you know, maybe a quarter mile. And in the morning, it kind of shifted a little bit and it was kind of noisy. But now with us moving that much, it was almost like an earthquake. I knew (laughs) that thing had really opened up and I went out there and that crack was three, four, five, six feet wide at, at spots. It was heaved up in other areas. So no, that has not healed. Um, I, I would use extreme caution if you're going out to Malax or any of these big bodies of water with how warm it's been, uh, use extreme caution anytime you're crossing a crack like that. Cause we don't have enough ice underneath and heaves are always dangerous to cross. I don't care if it's 20 below, or you know uh you know 40 degrees like we're experiencing don't cross heaps uh that's number one rule especially with a truck and a wheelhouse that that's where you get on the evening news right Um, i've i've banked my living about not crossing the heave even though i've wanted to get to the other side uh, many times where i wanted to fish somewhere find a safe spot to cross go through a resort where they have a bridge never cross a heave especially on a year like this so which side of the of the crack were you on did you have to the cross it to get crack. everybody back you're on the good no, side the good side so in the morning when that thing shifted we had a bunch of people in portables uh but since we were running them out with rangers i told pete i said you know they all want to get together and they had pizzas for lunch and i said you know let's just take that opportunity to move everybody back to the rocks. We're going to fish the evening bite anyway. So we had shifted everyone in closer to where the hard houses were. And yeah, when that thing went through, we were all on the good side of the crack. So um, we would have been able to go uh, three or four miles down and probably cross that right on shore with the ranger and been fine. It's not like we were stuck out in the middle of the lake somewhere, but um yeah, it's still freaky, you know, when that sun started coming out and that ice started popping, I wanted everybody to be kind of close together anyway, um, just so we weren't dealing with something like that. And it's a, it can be a reality on Mille Lacs, you know, you're going to get cracks even mm-hmm. uh, on a normal year. Uh, it's just, that's why I tell so many people, if you're going to a big body of water, go out of a resort, an incredible resort somewhere where they have bridges and infrastructure, lake guys that are uh, used to dealing with this stuff all the time, then you're not going to get caught on the wrong side of the crack. If you just go out of a public access, like it's easy to do this year uh, because there's no snow, right? You can just access anywhere you want. Mm -hmm. Um, I still pay your 10, 15, $20, whatever they charge, go out of there. You're safe. You're going to have a better, (laughs) a better experience. And you know, if you run into troubles, you're not out on your own. Yeah. Well, and even this year too. Um, so Matt Jensen, who is the marketing director at Rapala, he and I were fishing together the other day and he told me a story about, um, I think it was his brother's or brother-in-law's friend had gone through this winter and their, their ranger was going down and they were able to get out. There were two guys and they were wearing a float suit and the float suit brought them back up and they were able to climb out. And obviously that's one of the scariest situations you could ever experience out on the ice. But for Matt, he's like, you know, I just sat there for a minute and he's like this, this whole float suit idea here that we put together, we're not the only company that's done it obviously, but Strikemaster's float suit. He's like, that was something that 
I felt was important and I wanted to bring that to our customers if they wanted to buy it. And he goes, I don't know for sure, but it's possible that it saved his life, you know, and that's something that I take really personally because I don't know if I just saved someone's life, you know, by this project that I'm working on. And so it just was kind of a moment for him. And I was talking to him about, you know, going through the ice before and not before ice suits that floated were a thing. And I'm like, you can't get out when you have, you can't swim with boots on. I mean, go and jump in a pool if you don't believe me. Like you just, it's almost impossible to swim if you're wearing boots. <laughs> and so, um, you know, having a suit that floats, I don't know, man. I know you wear it, Tony, but it just, to me, seems like whatever brand you go with, I mean, you and I wear the Strike Master suits. We love them. And we're, obviously um, have a lot of peace of mind there, but look into them. Whatever brand you decide to go with, it might save your life at the end of the day. And that's wild to think about, but it's the truth. Um, you have any stories like that, Tony, where there's just been such close calls that you just, you're like, wow, I mean, that really sets me back a bit. Oh, countless number of stories. I, I always tell people like, I can't, even remember my life prior to a float suit, right? Uh, uh, you know, going out on the ice without a float suit, I would never do it anymore. That's the only, I mean, that's the first piece of equipment you should have as an ice angler is a float suit. And I wear my Strike Master float suit every day. It's the first thing I put on. I would never step foot on the ice anymore without a float suit. No way. Um, like I said, I, I can't imagine my, how my life was prior to. It was just, I was, it's always been nerve wracking this year, uh, you know, because just cause it's fresh on my mind, I had several different close calls. Uh, but that's why you use your float suit, you use your picks and you use a spud bar and go out early ice with a buddy, you know, work as a team. I was on Malax right after the cold snap. So not too long ago, two, three weeks ago. And we were trying to find good ice for filming dialed and angling. And, uh, you know, I knew the ice was really varying on Mille Lacs because there had been a lot of ice that had and, and open water pockets and that sort of thing. So, you know, we decided to, you know, go through the resort and the resort had kind of staked out a little ways. They were in the process of checking ice themselves. So Pete and I were just kind of working with them, but, I was out there out in front of my four-wheeler just with the spud bar and then Pete was falling behind me and I said you know with a little bit of snow on this lake you can't see kind of where those areas had stayed open uh normally uh if you don't have snow um or you, you can see that ice like you said you can mm -hmm. see the cracks and that sort of thing you, you know you can walk but having that spud bar saved me from going in this year because I was on six inches of ice. Uh, it was six, six and a half, some spots were seven. Um, I wanted to get to this particular gravel bar that we could shoot dialed in angling. And, uh, about halfway there I'm spudding along and there was a little bit of shelf ice. So I kind of stuck the spud bar out in front of me a little bit further. And if nobody, if somebody listening doesn't know what a spud bar is basically a chisel, it's a weighted chisel. Rappel makes a really nice one, uh, with a good handle and a strap. And I stuck that spud bar out in front of me uh, a little bit further than I normally would. And I stood on that shelf ice 
uh, just because it looked different. Uh, it didn't look a whole lot different. I, I, I think uh, someone that probably doesn't know ice as much as I would, it, it really didn't look that different, Trav. And even yeah. as an experienced person, I was just doing it to check and boom, I almost lost the spud bar. There was literally a half inch of ice right there. And all the rest oh. of the ice we had been checking was six to seven inches. And so, you know, obviously we pulled back and we took the same path that we had come out. And then we uh, wrapped around to a different area. We wanted to stay closer because, uh, you know, it was really my first time being on Mille Lacs that year or for this year. And uh, I wanted a really good show because, you know, this this fall, the bite was fantastic on Mille Lacs. And I knew that we could get into some really good fishing if I could get out to where I wanted to be. So we went back to shore and wrapped around a different area and same thing six, seven inches, six, seven inches. Uh, we found plenty of ice, found plenty of fish, but we wanted to kind of go out to another area to check and same deal, Travis. But now it's like way sketchier. There's like pockets all over the place. So we just pulled Ooh. out of there. Um, but not, ha you, you know, you kind of have to have the whole system. You have to have the float suit. You have to have the, the picks around your neck and you have to have the spud bar and, mm -hmm. uh, that spud bar saves me. So don't, just think that you have a float suit that you're good to go. Or I see people with an auger and they'll put the auger out in front of them. And that's fine when the ice starts getting thicker, but early ice, go mm -hmm. get yourself a spud bar. That thing has saved me more times than not. Um, walking around, like you were saying, you couldn't see the cracks and there was water on the ice on Tonka. At least with that spud bar, you can stick that out front of you and continue checking. And, yeah. uh, um, that's it's a te it becomes a tedious process on a, such a big lake like Mille Lacs, but I mean, ultimately, look what you just could you imagine if you go through? Um, and yeah, so the float suit obviously keeps you from just sinking, gives you the chance to figure out how you're going to get back on the ice. Um, there are videos that people have done and kind of show you how to distribute your weight to pull yourself back out if you have picks. Um, there's been a couple of hairy situations this year that. I encountered and what I ended up doing is going into it. I knew that it was a, a sketchy spot. And so I, I stuck my picks through my jacket sleeve so that they were already out because I do wonder sometimes, could I pull them apart if water gets in there, you know, where the spikes stick into the plastic where it becomes one solid unit versus pulling them out and then using it to pick yourself back out and slide on your belly out of the ice. Um, so they were just hanging like kids gloves do, you know, that are attached to their jacket when they're two years old or one year old. Um, but that's how my, my spikes were. And I just knew that if I needed to, I could grab them and I could pull myself back out, uh, which is like, why are we even talking about this <laughs> other than ice changed that quickly when I was on an area that I felt really safe on and suddenly everything changed. Um, and that's another story for another time. Uh, we've been talking about the dangers of ice this whole time. I don't want to scare people away. The fishing has been really good. If you're safe and you just use a lot of caution getting out there, give yourself a little bit more time so you're not rushed to get out on the ice. But um, there's great ice in places up north. Fishing has been good. Tony, you talked a couple times about dialed in angling. You and I have filmed a couple of shows together. We had a, probably the scariest moment in my fishing life happen. Um, we'll get to that in a minute, but you've been all over Northern Minnesota. 
You went to North Dakota. You went up into Canada. Maybe recap a little bit of where you've been and anything that you felt stood out to you as like, this is um, this is maybe one of the most overlooked places that I kind of want to spend more time fishing that our listeners might say, yeah, I'm interested in that. Yeah, well, let me back up first and say like there hasn't been a single time of filming this year that I have felt unsafe on the ice, right? Um, mm-hmm. That Malax deal uh, was, you know, us checking and trying to see how far out that ice pack went, which is normal. Uh, I do it every single year. I just like driving your vehicle on the ice. I don't tend to start even walking on the ice until we have at least five, six inches. Uh, I like to have five. I mean, I know four is the minimum, but I'm not a person to be out there on two or three inches. And none of our filming, we, we were on any skinny ice like that. So yeah, yeah I, I, there's so many destinations that I want to hit, you know, as we look towards next season that I wasn't able to get to this year just because, uh, you know, we're so limited as far as ice, but yeah, there's a lot of destinations that I was able to fish this year that, first of all, um, I maybe hadn't fished in a while because of the amount of snow we've had. And then also the time constraints of generally of guiding. I don't get to go fish some of these lakes and uh, destinations that I was able to this year. But yeah, there's several that come to mind. Uh, our first episode that we filmed, Wakusco Falls. I've always wanted to go there. Um, it just has never really been in the cards, never worked out right. Uh, Brian up at Wakusco Falls is just a great person. He owns the lodge up there, him and his wife. And, um, you know, in filming that first ice episode, we were really limited. There was no ice anywhere. We were looking mm-hmm. like seriously. Even Red about, wasn't ready for yeah. it. Yeah, I think uh, internally, yourself included in this meeting, uh, you know, we were like, well, do we go to Alaska? I mean, there was <laughs> almost no ice, right? Well, yeah. I had been monitoring, you know, some of the uh, the temperatures in northern Manitoba, and I saw a couple posts on Facebook that Brian Bogdan from Wakusco Falls had posted about being on, you know, five, six inches of ice already. And uh, it was pretty intriguing. So I had Chris Britton from Rampla kind of reach out to Brian ask him if it would even be a possibility for us to come up there. And of course he, you know, you know, loved the idea, you know, opened his place up to us and jumped in the truck with Kyle, the camera guy. And there we were, man, we drove 15 hours up to a Cusco. Um, Aside from the show, I would love to stay up there for two, three, four days. The fishing was amazing. Um, You know, uh, I've been to a lot of destinations in Canada and you know, the, the, the open water fishing and ice fishing can be radically different. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm telling you that place up there is special and we barely scratched the surface. We literally walked out on the ice. There was about eight inches of ice when we were there and we walked out from shore and how many times can you walk out to a spot and then just absolutely annihilate the walleyes as fast as you can get it down there? It was like catching bluegills off my dock uh, <laughs> and we're walleye fishing. So to, to kick off our first ice episode, that was pretty special. I bet North Dakota 
ranks pretty high up there too for the places that you went. I mean, that I have a love for that state that goes way back, but ice fishing up there is one of those things where there's, there's those pothole glacial lakes all over the place. And I mean, you look at them and you're like, is that a swamp? Is there fish in there? Um, should we try it? You know, and you made a journey up there and fish one of those little lakes and it just looked like, I mean, I wanted to get in the truck and drive up there too. I mean, is that something you've done a lot of and will you go back? Definitely going back. Uh, definitely loved it. Um, Travis, you hunt a ton, so you can relate to this. Like, you know, when you're driving, you're coming back from a pheasant trip and then every little draw and slew you see, you start thinking, oh, I, I'd hunt birds through there. Or I'd, you know, uh-huh. that was no different than us when we got out to North Dakota and started fishing one of those sloughs. Uh, with no snow this year on our drive back, I was like, man, I'd love to hit that slough and that slough. So I was actually dropping pins on locations that I want to try you know, next time I come out there, because I like a lot of anglers get, you know, stuck in the the habit of um, going to places where I'm comfortable and where I've been before. Like I've been to Devil's Lake a ton. So I know a lot of places around there to fish. I know a lot of spots I like to hit for perch, for walleyes, what have you. Um, same with like Sakakawea, right? I, I like mm-hmm. going to, those are big destinations but I tend to pass over all those little pothole lakes. And so when we went out there, I actually fished a pothole. I've, I've never fished in my life. Uh, my, we met up with my buddy, Tori. He fishes a lot of those different potholes. He'll try ones randomly. Uh, well on a year like this with no snow, if I lived out there, I would be trying all these potholes cause you don't easy access. Isn't usually that easy out there. As you know, there's tons of snow, right usually requires track machines. There's a lot of work to getting out onto these potholes. And this year with no snow, just being able to, we drove our wheelers right out there. And so we just kind of looked at it as, all right, we're going to explore this whole body of water. We want to figure out where the best fishing is. And so uh, it, it was a little hard to tell when you watch the show, but we did drill hundreds of holes and we checked a lot before we landed on our destination. And we ended up finding a saddle in between two main lake points and the fish were all over this saddle and there was perch and walleyes and it, it was really fun. You know, the sun was out. It was uh, very little wind when we were there, especially, you know, midday, we were catching perch like crazy. As soon as the clouds came in and the wind picked up, it was like, like somebody had hit a light switch, the perch were gone and the walleyes were in and it was game on. I ended up catching a, the walleye caught at the end there. That was right around a 28 incher. I, we didn't weigh it. Obviously we we're just standing on the ice and it was cold. We took a couple pictures and got it back in. But I mean, you want to talk about healthy fish, all the perch we caught, the walleyes we caught. It was just fun. It was, it was, I know you are like me where you love exploring, mm-hmm. uh, getting out there and just be able to explore a, a lake like that. That's what made the trip for me. Yeah. And those, those glacial lakes out there, the freshwater shrimp are what really make that fishery as special as it is. Those tiny sloughs can be so full of fish that you just shake your head. You're like, how is this possible? But the forage that they have in the size, you know, that 28 inch was probably a nine and a half pound fish that you caught just because of 
how healthy they are out there. I've tried to convince our DNR here in Minnesota to stock the lakes with freshwater shrimp, and there's some logistics that go into making that not happen. I've also tried to get a Jurassic Park lake um, somewhere in our state because I want some Xander, you know? I want something wild, and I still haven't convinced them to do that yet, but I'm not going to stop. You and I, actually, we filmed a couple shows together, and and this is how we're going to get into the, the craziest story of my life, but we went into my old stomping grounds up in, I went to college in Bemidji and we were kind of in that neck of the woods, uh, out in the middle of nowhere on one of those backcountry Northwoods lakes up there in search of panfish. And we were filming, you know, how to do a fish drive. And I, I don't know what kind of feedback you got from that episode. I got positive and I'll say negative feedback because the technology that's available today is game changing when it comes to finding and hunting for fish in lakes that don't have a lot of information out there where people aren't fishing. Now I'll say because when I went to college up there, we had a Vexilar. This was even, I think, before Markham was out. And so you went and drilled a hole and you could see about a three foot circle underneath your hole. If there was a fish in that cone, you knew that there was something there. But the problem is, and this is what we really tried to show people, was the noise that you make on some of those small lakes in the middle of nowhere where they're not used to noise drastically changes the fish behavior. And so every step you took on the ice that day moved the fish 50 feet in front of you. So every hole that you drilled, if you put a, a just a regular cone down there looking below you, you were going to say there's no fish in this lake. Because they were always a minimum of 40, 50, 60, 70 feet ahead of your every step. And we could show that with live sonar. I had the active target going, the Lawrence active target. And I'm like, Tony, they're coming this way. And we documented what it looked like to do a fish drive. And you were explaining how you do this regularly with your clients. And so people were fascinated by that. The viewers were. Um, They sent me messages. I'm curious to hear what you heard about this too. But I also had some people say that it's not fair to the fish and we shouldn't be showing that because we could ruin a lake. And so I've gone back and forth on it. And in my responses, I try to respond to everybody. Um, I'm curious, what was the feedback that you received on, on the fish drive episode? Uh, mainly positive. I, you know, a lot of people thought, well, I never thought of that, you know, um, they've experienced fish being spooky, but didn't, you know, kind of set up and do a fish drive like we, like I do with customers. And then like we did on the ice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was a lot of people, it, it opened their eyes to what they could do as far as working as a team out there. Now, you know, I can't, I, I did have some people get mad on the technology side of things, but I always look at it like you can't get mad at technology. What you can get mad at is people that are over harvesting fish mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, that are constantly beating up on resources, taking all the biggest panfish out of the lake and abusing that. I, I'm not like that. I not one dialing, dialed in angling that I've been on. Have I kept even one fish for myself um, or for guiding? I, I just like the experience of fishing. I do keep some fish for uh, a fish fry. I just kept some perch the other day. I love eating fish, so don't get me wrong. But also with technology, it becomes re- there becomes a responsibility. And 
you're not going to reverse the technology. So to get mad at that portion of it, it's not going to change. There's anglers out there that are going to continue to utilize that technology. It's just being responsible enough to, uh, you know, harvest maybe a few fish that you want to take home and eat, uh, and then letting the rest go. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, I had tons of good feedback. I, I think people were the more, the questions I fielded were more like, Hey, um, you know, how far out were you guys viewing? Uh, I had to answer a few questions. I don't know if the viewers could see it on there, but, um, if you remember, we could not walk on top of the fish and drill to get them to move. We had to stop short of those fish because they were that spooky. And so I was kind of telling people, you know, I would walk in a, in an area and Travis would, would kind of shine to see which direction those fish were moving. And then I would get out in front of them, but I wouldn't get so close that you would spook them. So they'd move in a a direction where they're not feeding, for example, or they're already spooked. You gotta, you kind of gotta stand behind them and almost like herd, herd the fish (laughs) rather than jumping on top of them. So I had great feedback and it was fun uh, to have, you know, you and I and Pat out there, Pat does a ton of pan fishing. He mm-hmm. can relate. Every angler can relate that has this technology now about these fish moving, especially on a year like this with hardly any snow and that thin ice. Mm-hmm. I went to so many places where I was like, man, I wish I had Travis <laughs> and Pat here because <laughs> the fish were moving so much. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to, I think what we really wanted to show people and to make them think, okay, my, Every move affects those fish or can affect those fish. And we tried our best to show it. And I mean, we're not perfect. You know, we're, we're learning how to film that and get all those details in there too. And cameraman as well, but like cameraman couldn't move. I mean, there were so many times this year, early ice that we were filming and you were filming and it's like cameraman wanted to get what the, what you were looking at on the sonar. But if he took a step, those fish were gone. So it's like wherever he is standing, don't move, don't move. Here they come. If you move, they were, they were literally out of there. Um, so, you know, talking about the technology, but Tony, remember when we were up on red Lake and we were fishing in really shallow water, we were in like seven feet, six and a half, seven feet of water. And you were catching walleyes and I just, I was using active target. You were not, uh, that, that made a difference. And I firmly believe that because I couldn't get once a fish, I would see him come into my, you know, my viewing area, which, you know, it's almost 10 feet out. Um, Even in that shallow water, I can see five to eight feet or 10 feet on each side as it's looking out. So I had fish coming in that wouldn't, they would turn and go away before they even saw my bait. And as soon as I took that sonar out of the hole and I just went to standard Markham and had the sonar looking straight down. I started catching fish, but I never caught a walleye that day. I don't know if you remember that until I removed the live imaging out of the hole. And I do believe, and other people, we've talked about this before you and I, and I've talked with other anglers that are like, man, you know, on your boat in the summer, when you're scanning, as soon as you see the fish, you turn off, you, you turn away from them. So you're not scaring them with the sonar. Um, it is seeming like, depending on the situation, it can scare fish away from your hole. Uh, have you seen that in any other place, or am I crazy? Happens a lot. Um, you know, if anybody follows like the bass circuit, right? Uh, Bass. Uh, a lot of those anglers down south, when they're dealing with fish that are really, really pressured, 
um, they're talking about how they're doing exactly what you said, shining on those fish. As soon as you see them, you pull your trans, your forward facing deucer off those fish. So you cast to them. Otherwise they will not bite. And most times they'll spook in the winter. I've seen it a lot where when we're looking for fish, if I find them, I quit shining on them because I don't want to spook their, they feel that. And so, yeah, when we were on Red Lake, I was using my Markham and those fish were coming in. They had no problem with that, but they did not like that forward facing sonar. It's super <laughs> powerful. And uh, lots of anglers have experienced that now. And, you know, um, it's not just on high pressure lakes. It seems like when the fish are really negative in the winter, um, they're real susceptible to moving. Like uh, just the other day, we were on Winnie looking for some new schools of fish and we hit this hump. And as soon as uh, Pete shined on those fish, boom, they took off and they were swimming. And I was like, all right, man, let's just quit shining. Let's, let's just get to fishing here and get set up for the evening bite. And, uh, yeah, those fish came back. We caught them on 2d sonar, caught them with Markham. So yeah, just sitting there down viewing or forward facing all the time. Uh, if you're seeing fish that are coming into the cone and they're not biting or they're scurrying away, it's time to switch back to your 2d sonar. Yeah. And, and it's case by case. I mean, that's the thing about fishing is every day is different. I was just out, like I said, when I took, uh, that gentleman from France out fishing. Um, I actually drilled four holes in a straight line. I put the the active target sonar in the center and we were all playing on the same video screen and the big screen showed all the fish and it was so much fun to watch everybody's bait and how they're reacting and here comes a muskie and oh, there's a bat. And like, it is so cool to watch that. And the fish were not affected by it that day at all. And we were in 13, 14 feet of water. Um, you know, so... I don't know. I guess there's something to be learned every time you go fishing and paying attention to the details. I t pulled my, my transducer out after watching you catch too many fish. And I'm like, dude, they're not, they won't, it's not like they're, they're coming in and just saying, no, nah, I don't want what you're doing there. Cause I can see that they wouldn't come within six feet of my bait, you know? And like, they're not looking at it and saying no to it. They just won't come in and look at it. As soon as I pulled it, boom, start catching walleyes in shallow water. So things to think about, I guess, more than anything. Hey, Minnesota anglers, it's almost time to renew your fishing license again. March 1st is the start of a new license year in Minnesota, which means you have to purchase a new fishing license before hitting the water. As you get ready to purchase your next fishing license, I'd like to remind you that Minnesota sells lifetime hunting and fishing licenses. It's a one-time purchase and the license is valid for the rest of your life. You can also purchase a lifetime license for someone else. It really is one of the coolest gifts you can ever give to a loved one. If you buy this for a youngster, the value is even better. Same goes for an older hunter or angler. I've purchased lifetime licenses for several members of my family, and it's a gift that just keeps on giving. That obviously leads to a lifetime of joy in the outdoors. And if they move out of state, the license is still good. If you want to see all of the lifetime licenses that are available, head to the Minnesota DNR website to learn more at mndnr.gov slash lifetime. Good luck fishing. This message is brought to you by the Minnesota Propane Association. Clean, affordable, reliable energy. These are all the things that people want for their homes and businesses. The one source of energy in Minnesota that can offer all of these benefits is propane. Clean. Propane produces 43% fewer emissions than the equivalent amount of the electricity generated from the U.S. grid. 
affordable. According to the U.S. Department of Energy, propane costs approximately 30% less than electricity in the U.S. The savings in Minnesota can even be higher. Reliable. Propane is energy stored on site, independent of the grid. Propane can power your home or business anytime you need it. Energy. Propane is a direct energy source used at your home or business, unlike electricity, which is produced somewhere away from your home. By the time electricity gets to your home, 66% of the energy used to produce it is lost. That is why propane is approximately three times more efficient than electricity. Propane, the right energy right now. For more information on what propane can do for you and the environment, go to propane.com. Let's go back to that that day where we were doing the fish drive because I think that's something that um, I've talked about with a lot of people. I haven't talked about it on this podcast yet, so I think we should. Um, I think you and I have probably caught thousands of fish, Tony, through the ice. And I think you and I have probably kneeled down on the ice thousands of times while lifting your rod up over your shoulder and lifting the fish up and going down with your other hand to grab it. And what happens when you lift your rod up? It creates a flex. And how many times has the hook popped out when doing that? That particular day out on the ice, you and I were filming with Pat and I knelt down to grab a a sunny and the hook popped out and like a slingshot, it stuck right in the center of my eyeball. And in that moment, we all had the biggest eye-opening, no pun intended, experience probably on the ice. I know it went really scary really quick. Um, It was a small tungsten bluegill jig that stuck in my eye, but it went right dead center. And then I couldn't see for a moment in my left eye. And I looked at Pat and I said, Pat, where is it? Where is it? And uh, he's like, it's, it's in your eye. And how far we were like maybe a mile from the truck, probably through the woods, half a mile walk through the woods, half a mile walk across the lake, something like that. And the discomfort of having that hook lodged in my eyeball uh, my eye was just dripping. It was watering. Um, I did pull out my my phone and I put it on video because I wanted to see for myself where was it. Obviously, I couldn't see anything out of that eye and I couldn't see where it was. Um, but I instantly went into um, like not not panic mode, but like this is really serious right now. Um, Pat knelt down next to me and I go, is it into the barb or how far in is it? And you and I were already talking. We're like, all right, how do we get to uh, the hospital? Um, You know, I cut the line and, but the problem was when I move my eye up, down, left, right, you know, like you're just looking at things. And when you look, both eyes move, right? Well, the hook moved with it. And if I blinked, it moved the hook that was stuck in the eye. And my gosh, was that so uncomfortable? But Pap, calmly put two hands and held my eyes, my eyelids open and slid that hook right back out the way it came. And I come to find out after a month and a half of doctor visits, going to specialists, things like that, that Pat ultimately saved my, my sight that day. Um, Tony, had you ever seen anything like that before? No, I, I, kind of froze up a little bit because I thought, okay, if we cut the line, 
my immediately thinking is like, we just have to get you to the eye doctor because I've taken out countless amount of hooks out of people's arms, uh, you know, hands, fingers, doesn't bother me. I can do it with ease, but I've never dealt with a hook in the eyeball. Um, <laughs> I've had close calls with jigs near my eyes or sunglasses on, uh, but never, I've never had a customer get hooked. I've never had myself get hooked in the eyeball. Uh, you know, the, the, the jig that you had on and the bait that you had, I couldn't tell exactly where it was hooked um, in your eyeball. I just couldn't see it that well. So yeah, Pat just sprung right into action. I mean, he didn't even like hesitate though. You and I were kind of thinking, okay, what, what's our next step? He just like stopped. He's like, here, let me just see if I can pull it out. And he just, boom, I mean, went into action. And, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, it, it was a, a good half mile walk to shore and at least a half mile walk back to the truck, if not more. I'm thinking it's like three quarters, almost a mile back to the truck. With that in your eye and all the gear we were hauling, um, <laughs> it was remarkable. When that jig popped out, uh, I, I, well, for one thing, I'll never forget that the rest of my life. But two, yeah. when the jig popped out, I was like amazed that he just sprung into action and just pulled that thing out without even, I mean, he didn't even hesitate. Right. Well, and he didn't, he didn't say anything either. He just, he had, he saw an opportunity and he just slid it back out. And I think, you know, I have been in a couple of scary situations in hunting places, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, when accidents happen, like staying calm has such a drastic effect on the whole situation, you know, and how calm he was. When that when he popped that hook out, like we both gave each other probably one of the biggest hugs I've ever given another person and like held each other for like 30 seconds. I don't know if you remember that, Tony, but it was that scary. And I remember thinking as I opened my eye up, now will I be able to see again? Because it was just running, gushing with, you know, like if you took a stick to the eye, um, just picture, you know, like how your eye waters and how much on discomfort is going on. Um, and, uh, like I had basically, so what I ended up learning, Tony was your eye, your cornea has five layers. Think of it like an onion every time you peel back a layer. Right. So that hook went through four of the five layers in my eyeball, right in the center. And what that did was it essentially created, um, a slice right through my vision. So that day there were, if I looked through just my left eye, you were very blurry. You, it was a very dirty vision, but there were two of you. Like it, it created a double vision out of my left eye, which I, I can't even tell you how scary that is. And I remember thinking, I'm like, did I really just lose my eyesight? You know? And, and I, I just, um, like I wasn't feeling sorry for myself, but I was at the moment, like, holy crap, what's going to happen to me now? And we finished up. I ended up coming. Um, when we when we got in the vehicle, I called Minnesota Eye Specialists and I explained what happened. I said, I, I do have vision. It's blurry. It's hard to see. And it's double vision right now. And their initial thought was, we don't want to get affected. You need to get somewhere right away. And so um, for some reason, by the grace of God, there's an eye specialist in Brainerd on Tuesday nights that stays open till 7 p.m. 
So I raced in there and uh, made, or I called them and told them what happened. They're like, we'll be ready when you get here. And I got there at like 645 or something like that. And the doctor looks at it. And I very, very distinctly remember him staring in the microscope with the lights shining in my eye. And he's looking at all different directions, not saying anything. And he says, this is fascinating. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, I don't know how you're not in pain. I don't know how you can still see okay. Um, but we need to get you into a specialist downtown right away tomorrow morning. So he had to pull some strings to get me into a specialist down there. And that doctor then said the same thing. I showed him the video and um, ultimately they got me on antibiotics so that I didn't get infected. And they put me on a steroid to help the healing because they were certain that I would have, as it healed, there would be a scar and the scar would permanently affect my vision that I wouldn't be able to see clearly. It would always be distorted. And so he was thinking what would probably end up having to do is put a corrective lens or glasses that can correct that, that wave that went through the center of my eyeball. Um, but the, the way that it healed up and I give, I give God the glory for our, the way our bodies heal, man, because I today have 2020 vision and I could not, um, I've ever expected to be able to see like I can right now. Um, in the doctor, when I went for my follow-up, my one-month follow-up, um, he said, this will go down as one of the biggest bullets dodged that I will ever see in my career. And he's like, would you, would you be willing to share that video with me just so that I have it for my files? I mean, and this is a, it's all this guy does is look at eyeballs every single day. It's an eye specialist. And for him to say that, uh, you know, I just feel so lucky, but man, the lessons learned there, Tony, because you and I talked about this, Pat and I talked about this and everyone else I talked to, I almost always wear glasses when I fish because I've had close calls before with hooks and being hooked in the eyebrow. Um, but that particular day I did not wear sunglasses. I did not wear any glasses because, um, for a couple of reasons. One, my hearing is terrible. So I wear hearing aids when we're filming so I can hear you and everyone else talk. And so I'm not an idiot blubbering on TV saying, what, what, what? Uh, and, you know, my co says the way they fit when I'm wearing hearing aids, it's just uncomfortable. So anyway, I chose to hear versus protect my vision. And man, I don't know. I don't know if I'll do that again, but I've also just taken a different approach now when I go over those fish in the hole, when you kneel down to grab them, Hey, if that fish gets away, I, that's not the end of the world. I'm not going to dive in and have the hooks fling up and fly and, and risk that because it happened so fast. I don't know about you, but I, I watched some of your shows afterwards. <laughs> you were always wearing sunglasses after that. Did it change your, your plans? Yeah, I mean, I typically wear sunglasses anyway. Uh, this year's been such uh, an overwhelming amount of days that are overcast, though. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I tend to forget my sunglasses when it's cloudy like that. I don't, you know, it's just how my brain works. And mm -hmm. so, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's been on the back of my mind. Like every time you get a fish like bouncing up through the hole or like crappies, um, I was filming with scott the the camera guy that filmed us you know mm -hmm. on, on red and stuff and uh um yeah i mean uh, I, i've had so many conversations about this since it happened that uh you know it's something i'll never forget the other thing i'll never forget is when that jig came out uh the fact that 
I looked at you. I'm like, how are you feeling? You're like, ah, oh, just it's just a little bit like you got scratched in the eye. But you're like, I think we could just film. And we just ended up filming. I, I, I don't think the listeners understand. Like, we didn't finish up then. We filmed for another couple hours. And, <laughs> right. and uh, you know, your eye was a little watery. You do your talking points. We caught fish. We were having fun. We were catching a lot of fish. And then on the way out, we hauled all our gear like you normally would and kind of had a conversation like, hey, or get that checked out. Yep. Yep. It was sort of nonchalant, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and which was surprising to me. Cause when it popped out and I was like, are you okay? And you're like, yeah, I think I'm fine. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I don't, I don't think people realize that we fished for a couple more hours after this happened. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I definitely look at it differently. Now, if you see me, I, I'm not leaning directly over the holes anymore. I'm kind of off to the side, but it can happen in any scenario. I can think of uh, jerk baits come flying back at me in the summer, or a jig head, you know, like a BMC Moon Eye that came back and like cracked me in the temple one time, and I had my sunglasses on. So, yeah, I think that's just part of you know, most anglers should wear eye protection because of the glare from the sun. But then that whole factor mm-hmm. plays into my mind all the time now after that happened. Yeah, totally. And I just like, I think about how many times jigs have come flying or like a rapala jigging wrap. I mean, they're so heavy that they really launch really fast. Um, and just being mindful of it. I, yeah, when I go down to grab a fish out of the hole, I just kind of approach it a little differently. I hold my rod so that it's not, you know, like think about it. If you're listening right now, how often do you pull your rod up and towards you? Now I might just lift it straight up. So if the hook goes, it goes straight up in the air. But everyone I've told that to, they're like, oh my gosh, I can't even tell you how many times a hook has popped out of the hole, leaning over the hole. My kid's reeling, you know, hand over hand, a rattle reel or whatever it might be. And they got all this tension. The hook comes flying up and it's just like, I could not imagine it. And last thing I'll say about that too is um, it it turned into a really painful thing. And the doctor, I had very strict... Um, uh, orders not to lift anything over 10 pounds or 20 pounds. First it was 10 pounds, then it went to 20, then it went to 30 pounds each week. And I think back to like hauling all of our gear, pulling it through the woods without snow on the ground and how much pressure I put on my eye. I just am really grateful that I didn't like really blow it up, you know, like, cause it, that hole had gone through so many layers that they were worried that, and not to get too gross here, but like, that pressure is a, is, was a big deal. So, um, I certainly got lucky, Tony, I'm very lucky there. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people because of it. I think the biggest t- takeaway is obviously you can't, you can never, um, be prepared for every single accident, but, um, they happen quick being calm, um, being a calming presence there was a big deal. Cause that first doctor that I went to, he freaked me out. He was actually not very calm. He's like, this is serious. You got, you know, and I had already talked myself, convinced myself that I'm going to be okay, that this is going to heal. And he was concerned that it would not heal. And so now I'm scared that I'm not going to be able to see that it could get worse. I could lose my vision. And then things got really scary while sitting in the eye doctor there. And I just think back, I'm like, Pat was so much calmer. You were so much calmer. The doctor got me all worked up here. Um, but just how important it is to stay calm in an emergency situation. And, um, you know, it usually works itself out if you can do that. Uh, let's see here. We're almost at an hour already, Tony. So I think we should wrap this up. Um, are there any 
Any uh, well, we've talked about scary stories. Let's not talk about scary stories. Are there any highlights from this season that you're going to take away besides Wakusko Falls um, or any of your clients or any any special catches that really stand out to you? Um, I just the 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 love of exploring. You know this this year's opportunity to to film dialed and angling and go revisit fisheries that I haven't been to in a while or do things that I haven't done in angling, especially ice fishing angling in a while, like um, sight fishing for trout. I don't get to trout fish a lot, so I just uh, just had a blast filming this last dialed and angling episode of visually trout fishing. You know, we drilled a, a sight fishing hole and catching trout that i now my next day off, I'm going trout fishing somewhere because I love doing that. And I forgot how much I love doing that. Um, uh, ex- you know, this year has been great. Um, yeah, it's been a little too warm for making ice, but without with the lack of snow cover, uh, it's been really nice to go out and, and you know, I'll kind of game plan what we're going to do as far as filming and for me to go explore some of these lakes and pre-fish before we actually film that's been the greatest part to me. It's, uh, you know, as a, as a, as an angler, as a hunter, there's certain things that I do that I can't stop thinking about that I get up in the middle of the night and I'm excited about. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And this season one has done that. And I have a whole list of really cool fishing opportunities that I want to explore for next year for the show that, uh, it just gets me excited about it. I think every angler or hunter can relate to um, being able to explore um, new areas, to hunt new areas, to fish new areas, and I've been able to do that. Uh, but the ice is really limited to me, uh, to to the spectrum of where I can go, but I was still able to hit uh, a lot of destinations that I haven't been to in a while, and it, it it's really rejuvenated me as an ice angler in particular. Uh, I'm excited to get out of bed in the morning. So yeah, it's been a really fun project. Very cool. Well, I've learned a lot by working with you this season. Hopefully our viewers have learned quite a bit too. I think that this podcast, if there's a takeaway, there's a lot of good ice. And I think there will be a lot of good ice throughout Minnesota, the Dakotas, Wisconsin for several weeks yet. Just be careful. That's all. Like, don't just go flying around like you would in a normal year. This is a different year, but you can still go out and fish. Just maybe walk up, take the spud bar, check ahead of you. If it looks different, check it. That's it. And I think you're going to leave with hopefully a good experience. The fishing from all reports that you've shared, Tony, from my friends, myself, my experiences are that, hey, the fish are biting. It's a, it's a quiet time out there. And as a result, the fishing has been really good. Um, Tony, appreciate you taking some time out of your day off. It's not really a day off anymore because now you've been working, but hopefully you can get everything ready for your next trips, the next few days, and people continue to catch a lot of fish with you. Appreciate it, Tony. Yeah, thanks for having me, Trev. 